This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Ladies and gentlemen, May 17th, 2023. I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. And oh, man, a lot happened this week. You know, we're already into a new uh, presidential election cycle starting up for 2024. Yet we're still litigating some of the controversies and disputes in history of the prior Trump administration. One big uh, update on that that we'll discuss in just a minute. Also this week, Woke Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and how and more so why that is also an indicator of an odd phenomenon that so many male-oriented brands seem to be putting out messages and content and marketing campaigns that directly criticize the tastes and preferences of their core audience, or at least their historical core audience. Um, big House Republican committee revelations about financial impropriety from the Biden family, although the New York Times is trying to tell you otherwise, and uh, a new Twitter CEO. And as you know, I believe that the status of Elon Musk's transformation, ideological transformation of Twitter is a major story and an ongoing one. So we'll discuss uh, what is encouraging or concerning and why or why not about the new Twitter CEO. But this week, yes, the Trump-Russia collusion controversy and the federal uh, uh, intelligence investigation into that crossfire hurricane was, in retrospect, investigated as to the propriety of that investigation into Donald Trump and claims of his collusion uh, with Russia that was the biggest story in the country. I mean, it kind of girded the the early stages of the Trump presidency. And, you know, you you had two thirds of Democrats believing as late as 2018 that voting booths had been hacked by the Russians in collusion with the Trump campaign and that he was essentially an illegitimate president, which was interesting because kind of the way that Donald Trump got started in his political career was questioning the legitimacy on on very flimsy basis of the prior president, Barack Obama, and questions around him being born uh, in the United States and legitimately a, a born, natural born citizen, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that Donald Trump, uh, maybe it was even karmic retribution, but he was also the target of an illegitimate campaign questioning his legitimacy. Special counsel John Durham, very well regarded person um, on both sides of the aisle, although you know stemming from this report, he will no longer be well regarded by liberals and the Democratic Party. Um, But John Durham, four year investigation into the claims and the FBI investigation into the Trump Russia conspiracy, which we now can look uh, look at as purely a conspiracy because it was baseless and not supported by the facts whatsoever. Uh, This was the biggest media story in the country. It dominated the national discourse and it kind of tore the country apart because once again, you already had a divisive enough guy in Donald Trump as the president, just kind of taste wise and principle wise, very divisive. And then the claims that he was actually 
essentially installed by a hostile sovereign nation that that was our enemy was essentially an, a, a foreign agent running the country. Um, this would of course be a bad thing. And then you know the uh, uh, the many reports that came out um, that the claims and and the basis for that investigation were false, and that they could come up with no evidence whatsoever uh, of the Trump campaign. You know, to the extent that Russia did anything to one hurt Hillary Clinton or to help him, that he was in contact with Russia or that he encouraged it uh, uh, or colluded with Russia to engage in any of those activities. John Durham's report that the FBI investigation was bullshit. Yes, that is his conclusion directly from the report. Neither the U.S. nor the intelligence community appears to have possessed any actual evidence of collusion in their holdings at the commencement of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. FBI records prepared by Peter Strzok, an uh, FBI agent, in February and March 2017 show that, showed that at the time of the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI had no information in its holdings indicating that at any time during the campaign, anyone in the Trump, uh, Trump administration or campaign had been in contact with any Russian intelligence officials. Our investigation determined that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators did not and could not corroborate any of the substantive allegations contained in Steele reporting. That is a Steele dossier, once again, which was paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign as opposition research, turns out to be just an enormous wave of bullshit in making many claims that were poorly or not sourced at all about Donald Trump and ties to a variety of Russian actors, whether governmental or quasi-governmental. Um, and that was the basis, uh, at least you know, a strong part of the basis for the opening for the suspicion that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians to uh, assist him in the 2016 election and install him as president. And it was all bullshit. And that is a comprehensively reported and documented conclusion by John Durham. Um, so you could sit there and say, well, OK, you know, not every investigation turns out to uh, show evidence of a crime. Right. And you know, that it, it was their probable cause. Was there a good faith belief to act on this information to continue to make accusations of collusion and continue the investigation. Um, and of course, the media, you know, particularly the liberal leaning media, which is just about all the media, particularly in the Trump era, amplified all the claims and suspicions and anything that did emanate from this investigation uh, uh, and did not subject it to scrutiny whatsoever and kind of amplified it as fact right off the ba right off the bat. So, you know, in looking at whether or not a a investigation and investigation was legitimate you look at was there a, a justification initially for the belief that a crime did occur um, were the findings of the investigation subjected to scrutiny did commentators who were discussing the investigation and the claims properly verify claims before stating them as fact or, or hard suggestion were the facts of the investigation communicated accurately to the public were any mistakes made in good faith or were they made willfully or with gross negligence I think all of those fall short in terms of uh, looking at the claims by the Hillary Clinton and the Clinton team and her campaign by the FBI and by the liberal media that seemed to be uh, rooting for uh, evidence to get rid of Donald Trump that he had colluded with the Russians. Um, Don, the Durham report turns out poorly for all of them uh, on all of those prongs. And to sum up what now in retrospect we know did occur and a lot of us knew at the time was occurring, the president of the United States was falsely accused of being a foreign agent of Russia and framed for treason by the FBI, the Justice Department and the American media and no one will be held accountable. Let's read that again. The president of the United States was falsely accused of being a foreign agent of Russia, framed for treason by the FBI, the Justice Department, and the American media, and no one will be held accountable. All of that is true. That is what occurred here. You may not like Donald Trump. I found a lot to dislike about him. But a, a number of times I continued to be told that I needed to believe things that seemed to be not true 
if I wanted to prove that I was anti-Donald Trump, right? That that was the smell test. Continually, there would be accusations made against him, and I would try to subject those factual, you know, to determine whether or not these were facts or not. And and you were told that you have to believe things that has survived no scrutiny whatsoever, that had no factual basis whatsoever, regardless, just because Donald Trump was an asshole. Turns out it was all bullshit. And so let's look into some of the misconduct. Hillary Clinton, his opponent, once again, this was all, this was all, this, the, the, all the insinuation that Donald Trump was a Russian agent emanated from his political opponent, Hillary Clinton, in order to delegitimize him as kind of a counterweight to his act accusations against her and her impropriety with her email server. Um, in 2016, I believe it was August, Hillary Clinton tweets out a claim that there's a secret proof of a secret server linking the Trump organization to a Russian bank. Completely false. No, fa- there's That was a completely false claim. No factual basis to that whatsoever. President Obama, who was still president during the 2016 presidential campaign, tried to obtain a FISA search warrant on, uh, on Trump aide George Papadopoulos, was unable to uh, secure that warrant, but clearly and as it turns out, there was no basis to secure that warrant. But clearly, you could see what their intent was and what their what what their objective was. Um, the CIA had direct knowledge of the Clinton plan to vilify Trump by linking him to Putin in Russia. On August third, two thousand and sixteen, CIA Director John Brennan, who's clearly shown himself to be a, a liberal and Clinton partisan, met with President Obama, VP at the time Biden, now the president, and other senior administrative officials, including but but not limited to Attorney General Loretta Lynch and FBI Director James Comey. Now, there's evidence of this meeting where it was very clearly uh, uh, acknowledged that Hillary Clinton and the Clinton campaign was making a concerted effort to tie Donald Trump to Russia, to efforts by the Russians that were, the, the Russians were doing a few things to screw with Hillary. But once again, you got to remember, in August 2016, everyone thought Hillary was going to win. Nobody thought Donald Trump was going to win. Russia was taking some steps against Hillary Clinton just to screw with her to damage her for when she became president because that's what they thought was going to happen. Okay, and so the Clinton uh, the Clinton campaign looked for any uh, tried to fabricate any evidence they could whatsoever that Donald Trump was behind that all that there was collusion between Donald Trump and whatever the Russians were doing. Um, and at that meeting, that was uh, the 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 narrative went out. You know, the instructions went out. That is the narrative that everybody is going to run with. Um, you had FBI agents who were clearly biased. Regardless of whether or not you like the officials, the targets of the investigation, the investigators are supposed to be neutral. If there are conflicts of interest, that disqualifies the people holding the investigation. Peter Strzok, Andrew McCabe, uh, one of the deputy directors of the FBI at the time, clearly uh, uh, anti-Trump partisans and in favor and wanted to see Hillary Clinton uh, uh, win that election and wanted to see Donald Trump removed from office. Um, the opening of the cross crossfire hurricane uh, investigation, which was the FBI investigation into Trump, is based on uh, uh, apparently it was based on claims that someone heard George Papadopoulos admit that he had knowledge that the Trump ca- uh, campaign had knowledge and was in contact with Russia in turn uh, in regards to the hacking of Hillary Clinton emails. Once again, thus far nobody's proven who hacked uh, Hillary Clinton's email server. I mean, it, it came out through WikiLeaks, but nobody knows where those emanated from. Everybody is suspecting the Russians. Nobody's proved it. And more so, uh, everybody went ahead and said, "Okay, well, it must be the Russians at the behest or in conjunction with the Donald Trump campaign. Crossfire hurricane emanated from claims that George Papadopoulos had admitted to this. Those turned out to be complete and utter bullshit. The Steele dossier. Once again, opposition research that was paid for. Christopher Steele was private security and intelligence personnel. He was for hire. He was doing a job 
paid by a campaign to dig up dirt. And he dug up, he put together a dossier that once again at the time seemed to be incredibly specious and anyone would be skeptical of it. These ridiculous accusations of the Russians having this P tape and we know how much the media loved that story about the, the prospects or the the, uh, the claims that the Russians had uh, a video of Donald Trump being peed on by a prostitute in a Russian hotel room and they were using this to blackmail him. Uh, all other sorts of nonsense. Once again, he was literally a contractor paid by the Clinton administration to go put this dossier together and it was used as the basis for the claims of Trump collusion. One of Christopher Steele's sources on the, the Steele dossier, Igor Danchenko, turns out he was paid $200,000 as well. Turns out everything that he mentioned was bullshit. Turns out that that's where at least the claims and the speculation about the P-tape emanated from and it turns out that Igor Danchenko had no knowledge of this and was not at the hotel and had no connection, was purely speculating on this whatsoever. There's no basis in fact at all. The FBI clearly in contact with the Clinton campaign and its surrogate and seemingly acting at their behest. And once again, the impression of impropriety, okay? You not so once again, this is supposed to be neutral. This is supposed to be nonpartisan, okay? When those conducting the investigation are clearly aiming for a particular outcome uh, and trying to back the facts into that outcome instead of acting on the facts and subjecting the evidence and the claims to scrutiny to determine whether or not they are facts. Uh, there's so much in the Durham report. I mean, it's nearly impossible to summarize it all uh, uh, here in the here and now, but you can certainly find no shortage of sources on it uh, uh, in the press and on social media. And of course, everyone's going to go ahead and say, oh, duh, John Durham was in the bag for Donald Trump. There's nothing about his background. He is one of the most well-regarded people in uh, the national security apparatus or in government, period. And there's really no basis for that, that skepticism whatsoever. It's just going to be more people who are unhappy with the results of his finding who now claims that he was biased in the first place with no, once again no basis in fact will there be any repercussions to this probably not let's just be honest here and and once again as i acknowledge it's kind of odd that we're over two years since donald trump has been in office still relitigating the controversies of that era but we kind of have to and it's almost better that we're doing it now because pe temperatures have have decreased a little bit and we can kind of see it with a clear lens um but no uh, unfortunately i don't think there are going to be any direct repercussions to this whatsoever nobody is going to get fired nobody is going to be put in jail and john durham knew because it's hard to tell it, it, it was hard to pin an actual uh uh breach or violation of an actual law that would warrant charges from this entire episode it's just a lot of incredibly unethical behavior that really did damage the country in so many ways shapes and forms and, and let's see the fbi does the f because the, the fbi is supposed to be a respectable upstanding ethical organization do they acknowledge and own up to any of this here's the official statement put out in response to the durham report by the fbi the conduct in 2016 and 2017 that special counsel Durham examined was the reason that the current FBI leadership already implemented dozens of corrective actions, which have now been in place for some time. Had those reforms been in place in 2016, missteps identified in the report could have been prevented. This report reinforces the importance of ensuring the FBI continues to do its work with rigor, objectivity, and haha, -ha, I can't. <laughs> I can't even finish this, right? Look at this statement. The FBI has admitted it and said, yeah, we made some mistakes and it's glad that we had, it's glad that, that, that this uh, report came out that shows how complete full of shit that we were because we had, it's so good that we implemented all these new safeguards and policies to prevent it from ever happening again. Once again, trying to create the impression that this these were all good faith mistakes, that these were people operating under a sheen of professional responsibility, that they were operating with the best, uh, uh, 
with the truth and the welfare of the nation in mind instead of just simply going after Donald Trump, which is what they did. Uh, and because he is an unsympathetic figure, they're going to get away with it. But just a completely Orwellian and just tyrannical statement by the FBI that, you know, they can't hide from this one and they can't completely uh, uh, deny their many mistakes and all the malfeasance and misconduct that went on. So they're going to say, yeah, this was great. Thank God we put we put our changes and new policies into place so this won't happen again. Um, you can't. And then you look at this type of stuff and you're like, oh, OK, no wonder our country is uh, descending into a cynical cesspool where every uh, every institution has lost its legitimacy. So, yeah, you can look around and I know a, a number of people on a personal level who were so sure 2016, 17, even through 18, they went until the uh, Mueller report came out. They were so sure they were going to nail Trump on Russia some way. Somehow they knew they were going to get him. They were going to get rid of Trump that way. And when it turned out that that the Mueller report showed that all of this was bullshit, that you know, there was no proof of collusion. A couple people on a personal level owned up to it. But I don't. Is this going to enact any wholesale changes? Is there going to be any accountability? Are we going to be able to clean this up going forward? I mean, I think a lot of people just think that the cleanup is just that we don't have to deal with Donald Trump anymore. But here's the unfortunate part. We still do. That's the thing. Everybody thinks, uh, once again, I am not a supporter of his. I did not vote for him either time. I don't plan on voting for him if he ever runs again, which it seems that he is. Uh, uh, however, there's this, it, this is, all comes out of this fantasy that some of these problems can just be wished away. That if this guy win, legitimately wins an election, which he did in 2016 and did not in 2020, that we somehow can take this corrective action to, to, to you know, correct that mistake. That the voters made a mistake and we can somehow fix this you know, through the levers of power and uh, a corruption through our institutions and it's just dragging everybody down and as we'll get to in just a moment when looking into some of the uh, the investigations and reports about some of the activity and claims around some of our current president Joe Biden's activities, um, the outlook is not optimistic. It does not feel like our institutions are being cleaned up. Um, you could look at, you know, American history and look at Watergate and, and some of the corruption that was revealed and cynicism that was justified in response to stuff that was revealed in the 70s. And it seemed like, you know, there was there was some corrective action taken. There was some accountability uh, and, and the guardrail that kept these institutions functioning properly were in place. Uh, I wish I could say that that was the case now, but it certainly is not looking like that. Um, once again, we'll get to that in the context of our current president in just a moment. But first, we'll get into a little something about, uh, you know, what we're looking at in terms of, of woke capital and a lot of these male-oriented brands that feel that were built off male audiences and now feel compelled to spit in the face of those audiences. We will get to that in just a moment. So one phenomenon that keeps on repeating itself these days is male-oriented brands, brands that have a traditionally male customer base and built themselves off that customer base and appealing to traditional masculine appetites, tastes, and preferences, kind of spitting in the face of that customer base and criticizing those tastes and preferences. We saw it recently with Bud Light, which for some reason thought it, it felt the need to go do a marketing campaign with a transgender influencer who's kind of obnoxious and satirical. Bud Light's taken a bit of a hit since then. Um, Nike continues to roll out variety of marketing campaigns and uh, and commercials that criticize you know aspects such as the patriarchy or the notion that you know men are superior athletically even though obviously acknowledging that truth still leaves space open for females to participate and thrive in athletics and most recently sports illustrated um, kind of a rite of passage of masculinity uh, and of kind of male sports oriented culture was the sports illustrated swimsuit edition obviously it on its face was to promote certain swimwear but in a sports match 
magazine, a magazine that was there to highlight athletic accomplishments. It was there to appeal to a male audience. And, and no one really, you know, even though we might not say it on its surface or, or expressly say it, we all know that's what the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition was there for. Recently, now people, once again, like all just about all other consumer brands, uh, those behind Sports Illustrated and the Swimsuit Edition think that it is a new vector for social engineering to show us that our beliefs about beauty and our traditional notions of what is attractive were obviously wrong and hateful and oppressive, and we need to now be more quote-unquote inclusive and celebrate new forms of what people, or at least the people who run these magazines, now believe are beauty. Um, over the last few years, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition has featured a number of plus-size models, and let's be honest, these are people who are simply not attractive. They may have pretty faces, but they have high body fat percentages and well beyond what is reasonable and what is considered attractive by anybody but the most, you know, the most extreme outliers. But this is being put in front of us to tell us, hey, your beliefs about beauty uh, are retrograde reactionary and you're a knuckle dragging Neanderthal who needs to update what you accept as beautiful. Um, we can't kind of accept that the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition is there to highlight elite beauty. Doesn't mean that there's nothing else that's beautiful. Doesn't mean you can't celebrate other types of beauty or other people in other contexts. But to go and shove this into the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition is clearly meant to lecture the traditional audience, the audience that Sports Illustrated was built off of and say, hey, the things that you have generally liked that we did to service your tastes are wrong. So this year, sport, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition did a couple things, not as many plus size models, but it did two things. One, I put 81 year old or 82 year old Martha Stewart on the cover, which I don't, you know, uh, her generally, I don't have an issue with a thing more of us putting her on the cover because Martha does look fantastic for 82 and celebrating, uh, celebrating someone who has aged that well, I think is perfectly fine. But putting her on the cover is clearly there to send a message. Um, but more prominently, they also featured a person named Kim Petrus. Kim Petrus was born Tim Petrus, okay, as a German transgender singer, Grammy Award winner. And they put Kim Petrus, good old Tim Petrus, in a swimsuit obviously airbrushed into oblivion just like every other photo in this magazine heavily airbrushed and, and touched up and place this person in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition in a skimpy bikini as if this is just a hot a hot female right and obviously you know some people who are reading this magazine will re will have known that this is a man because that's what it is it's a man who was uh, put on on a number of hormones and given plastic surgery. Um, but no, really, it's, it's there. And if you look at the literature that um, and the articles and the commentary that Sports Illustrated itself publishes around this, they make no mention of this. They make no mention that this is this person is transgender, that they were born a man. And the people that are looking in this magazine clearly to ogle women in skimpy bikinis are ogling a man, right? I mean, Sports Illustrated published an article, Meet the 28 Women Featured in the 2023 SI Swimsuit Edition. Kim Petras, just no mention whatsoever of it being a man. Seems like this is a relevant fact about this situation. Um, so the question becomes, one, yes, the, the, the notion that this is just to create a more tolerant, uh, uh, gentle, compassionate society is utter an utter fabrication. That is such another fraud. It's ridiculous. Okay. There are in, in immense ways for us to acknowledge certain transgender people in compassionate context it, to take this person and stick them in a space that was once again built. The Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and Sports Illustrated itself only exists because of male sports fans. Okay. That's what it was built off of. And that's what it has to appeal to. That's what it owes the brand to. And this, as we all know, is a vector for men 
primarily men and also women who like to see beautiful people because women like to see beautiful women as well and to appreciate uh, uh, elite beauty. That's what the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition is there for and trying to go and sneak some transgender model airbrushed into oblivion in there. Mm, that's to send a message that, hey, hey, you bigots. Hey, if you find this revolting, if you are grossed out by this, if you find this off-putting, we think you're a bigot. We think you're some unsophisticated reaction. Go back to the 1920s, you uh, you scum. That's what the, that's the message that they're trying to send. Um, so then th that begs the question, what is driving this and what drives all these different campaigns and these brands that think now it's either one, a good business decision or two, their moral imperative to start lecturing their audience about how masculinity is bad. Um, there's a couple, you know, you could wonder and some people excuse it. Well, we they think it's a good business decision because it appeals. It will it will expand the customer base to appeal to women. I mean, do women really like this stuff? A bunch more women going to drink Bud Light because Dylan Mulvaney, who's there mocking women in kind of a minstrel show, is part of their marketing campaign because they're elevating this woman or this pretend woman. I, I don't think that's a shrewd business decision. Um, a lot of women already read the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Um a, a transgender model is going to make appeal to that many more women. I, I, I shudder. I can't buy that explanation. I don't re really think that that is what can explain why uh, these brands, these corporate historically male oriented brands now think they need to participate in social engineering. Um, two pieces that have been written over the years, uh, one recently and one a couple years ago that I think really explain or, you know, at least aspects of them do explain some of this or try to explain this phenomenon of male oriented corporate brands that want to essentially spit in the face of traditional masculinity and lecture their traditional customer base about why their traditional customer base is bad. Um, one is called the end of Nike's end of men. This was written by my friend Ethan Strauss. Uh, he's got a great sub stack. He was formerly the, uh, the Warriors beat writer for ESPN and the athletic. And he writes about the intersection of sports and culture. Um, and the whole idea is that Nike, Nike had a couple commercials that was one, you know, criticizing the patriarchy. Like, is that Nike's place? And like, everyone is acknowledged that women's athletic, that a lot of, there are a lot of great female athletes and some of them should be ambassadors and endorsed, uh, endorsed Nike. And we should celebrate, you know, women athletics itself, although it's not quite as appealing and they're never going to be quite as good as the top male athletes. Seems like a relatively, you know, reasonable place that society got to. But no, Nike then felt compelled. We need to lecture everybody about how the patriarchy is wrong and put on some notions in one commercial that you had the women defeating the men and what what what's the purpose of this why did they feel compelled to do this and so ethan dived into it and trying to understand the rationale um, as he mentions nike is a company built on masculinity and now finds masculinity probably problematic enough to loudly reject Here's the main issue for Nike in this endeavor. The, the company, as a raison d'etre, promotes athletic excellence. While women are among Nike's major sports stars, the core of high-level performance in the overwhelming majority of sports is male. Every sane person knows that, though nobody in the professional, uh, professional class life seems rude enough to say so. Obviously, there's the observable reality of who tends to set records, and then there's the pervasive understanding that testosterone, the, the main male sex hormone, happens to give unfair advantages to the athletes who inject it. Nike could easily sell the success, uh, successful American women's basketball team without denigrating other teams, genders, and ancient Mediterranean empires. I think there was some reference to that in one of the commercials, but they're unwilling to. The company now conveys an almost visceral need for women to triumph over men, but why? 
And one of the explanations is the people that work at these companies. Okay, there's more the there's a higher share of females in the executive class at these companies, and these women mostly graduated from usher, uh, got marketing degrees from upper echelon universities, and they hold more radical, exaggerated feminist views where we can't just be tolerant and accept everybody and, and acknowledge everybody's skills and talents without you know uh, being blinded by uh, uh, blinded by their immutable characteristics. No, we now have to make sure that we show how pissed off we are about about the evil misogynist past and the patriarchy and because the those are the people who work at these companies and they they hold views that are not uh, reflected more broadly by the populace and the audience uh, that's that's what happens and here you know here's how Ethan explains it um, it's a combination of desperately wanting female market share and desperately wanting to move on from the publicized sins of a masculine past so to message its ambitions the exhausted uh, the exhausted corporation Nike in this case leans on the employees with the loudest answers those are the employees with the loudest answers. The loudest employees at these companies get their preferences and their desires manifested in the company's marketing campaign and their marketing campaigns that do not resonate with the with the customer base. And there was another commercial that it was about soccer and and very you know suggestive that the men, women's soccer team can beat the men's soccer team. And so Ethan talked to a, a Brazilian friend of his who's a soccer fan and uh, you know mentions that the, the guy was really turned off by the commercial. And as he says, Nike once told a story and that story resonated with its audience now it's decided that the audience is the problem it wouldn't shock you to learn that carlos his friend hated the new nike ads i texted to him his exact words were i don't want fucking activism from a sweatshop monopoly he'll still buy the gear just not the narrative he'll still buy the gear just not the narrative that is that is the rub right there is that these brands are lecturing their audience and trying to socially engineer you know a new better paradigm for society and their audience that does seem to it is a question of whether or not their audience and their customer base still has enough loyalty to continue to buy the products despite not resonating with the message and being turned off by the message in the case of bud light recently it turns out that there was rejection that the customer base uh, uh, the customer base went elsewhere. Uh, Bud Light sales are down about 25% year over year. I mean, it's a disaster for them. Nike has been a little more immune to this because Nike's brand is just that strong. But you do have to wonder at what point, or Nike's, Nike's actually walked back. This, once again, was from about two years ago. Nike's walked back from the aggression of doing things that are specifically designed to turn off their traditional audience. Um, but, you know, I think that's uh, uh, that dynamic of they'll buy the product but not the narrative is one that's pretty pervasive amongst a lot of people who just kind of nod their head and roll their eyes and just move on with their life in response to this stuff. Another dynamic that's definitely at play here is something called social desirability bias. Social desirability bias is a type of response bias that is the tendency of survey respondents to answer questions in a manner that will be viewed favorable favorably by others. Okay, so in this regard, when... Uh, there's something done strictly in the name of social justice that we know that people don't actually like, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have a lot of people sitting there pretending that, oh, it's so great and it's such an advancement for society that we put a senior citizen airbrushed into oblivion on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, and a, and a man, you know, a born man who's on hormones and plastic surgery 
dressed up as a sexy, skinny, bikini-clad uh, uh, female on the Sports Illustrated cover, where you're going to get a lot of people who are going to go pretend publicly because there's social desirability to wanting to be shown to be a compassionate, sensitive, inclusive person. I mean, it's all false, right? It's all phony. So you have heavy, heavy social desirability bias at play here. And this was discuss, uh, discussed in another piece by Richard Hanania, um, which is also a good piece that I do think, you know, the title and the, ba- it's interesting, the title and the base thesis of this piece in his Substack is wrong, but a lot of the, the sub points are actually right. What he titles this is anti-woke is autism. And the thesis is essentially all these brands engaging on in all these woke rituals and trying to elevate people who are farther down a natural uh, social hierarchy who aren't as attractive or might be, you know, transgender or might be overweight. The plus size model phenomenon, all these phenomenon is that this is all phony status is that this that that true status Right. That still on an interpersonal level, a more traditionally, uh, a more traditionally beautiful person will be treated well. And the Lizzo's of the world and the Kim Petrus's of the world will not be treated as well. But because our institutions are now uh, are now guided by social desirability bias, they get this phony status. And there's definitely some truth to it. I just don't think it explains the entire picture. Um, As he starts off, he, he quotes another guy that I follow on Twitter, who's fantastic, Rob Henderson. He does a lot of pieces on the study of the social sciences um, and mentioning that, you know, kind of how we, we celebrate now the dysfunctional or those who are traditionally lower on a variety of social hierarchies. Uh, Rob Henderson says, basically, the further you stray from conventional norms, the more status you are conferred. Anorexia is bad, but more uh, but morbidly obese is good, subverts the thin ideal. A feminine girl is bad, quote unquote, internalized misogyny, but a feminine boy is good, under, undermines gender norms. Richard responded, but that's a fake status. The, fe- the feminine attractive woman will be treated better and higher status than a fat, ugly one by everyone, even most liberals. It's like how we have awareness for people with diseases because we feel sorry for them. It's not real status. Um, that's definitely, there's definitely an element of that going on, right? In putting a Martha Stewart on the cover, once again, nothing wrong with Martha Stewart being in the magazine. Putting her on the cover was clearly meant to send a message and it's ridiculous. Um, or a Kim Petrus or all these plus size models. Uh, Hanani is saying that it's a fake status that's being conferred strictly by these institutions. But if it's being conferred, then how is it fake? I mean, that's kind of what status is, right? It's, it's a, how you are regarded by relevant actors in society. And if universities, corporations, brands, magazines are conferring the status on you and giving this to you, then that seems to be real status. They're like, you and I, you know, Hanani uses in his post mostly Lizzo as the example. But if most people in their private life, you know, don't like Lizzo or don't at least like her past, her, uh, her, her music and think that she shouldn't be kind of trotted out as, you know, a, a symbol of beauty. I mean, if the magazines and the corporations are going to do it, who really cares that a pre- people on a, a day, you know, people on a day to day basis in their personal life um, and personal interactions aren't going to confer the same status. Right. I mean, it seems to be real. Kim Petras has higher status because Kim Petras was in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. We all know it's fake and fabricated in terms of people's uh, actual tastes and preferences. We all know it's guided by social desirability bias, but the, the, the institutions are still doing it. So the question becomes, at what point do business concerns and this fake social desirability bias being pushed by the corporations, when do those two conflict? Definitely conflicted with the Dylan Mulvaney thing. 
with Bud Light with their sales falling. It is not conflicted with Nike, at least not yet, although once again, like I said, they've, they've pulled things back a little bit. Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. I don't know. We're going to have to see. I mean, it, you'll you'll uh, talk to a lot of people in response to this Kim Petras thing. Like, who's going to buy this, right? Like nobody's interested in this anymore. I mean, will this have enough of an impact on the bottom line for Sports Illustrated? Maybe not necessarily anymore because the Swimsuit Edition isn't that relevant to their bottom line and they've already shifted to digital. I mean, let's let's look at it. Sports Illustrated circulation has dropped from the, the late 2010, uh, the late aughts to the late 2010s, about 20% from 3.2 million to 2.7 million by about 2018. But their digital operation across a number of uh, a number of Sports Illustrated media group properties, that would be everything from the hockey news to the morning read to Athlon Sports, it's actually doing pretty well. That went up from 2021 to 2022. We will have to see if there's any discernible impact on the bottom line from Sports Illustrated here in doing things that are directly to send a message that their audience, the audience that they built their brand off of that is responsible for Sports Illustrated being successful was wrong and that their tastes and preferences are wrong and that they need to change and become better people. We're going to see if that scolding, if that lecturing works or if it doesn't work or if it has kind of a, you know, in Nike's case, uh, no impact whatsoever. We're going to have to take a look. But either way, an interesting time for this dynamic, because once again, this Bud Light kind of pseudo boycott or the actual backlash to Bud Light doing this was the first real backlash to this. Everyone always expects there to be a backlash, but Bud Light was the first time. Uh, is that is that an indicator of a sea change? Um, we will have to see. And I think the Sports Illustrated example will be will be an informative one um, because you go look, the editor of Sports, the new editor of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, I mean, her, her Instagram page is very very prominent Instagram page is just littered with comments about how great she is for putting these new faces and new examples of beauty on the cover of Sports Illustrated. But those are just comments on Instagram. So is there a conflict between the social desirability bias support you get on Instagram and on social media and actual purchasing power? That is an, a very, uh, uh, that dynamic between the two, super interesting to track and very relevant right now. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. As you know, one issue that I believe to be of vital importance to modern life and understanding it is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and his transformation of it ideologically and as a communication platform. Why is this so significant? Because Twitter, whether you like it or not, is the most powerful communication platform in the history of humanity. If not number one, it's top three at worst. It is the basis and headquarters for narrative formation of all political and current events discourse in America and generally the Western world. And that those are just facts, whether or not you like Twitter, whether or not you are a supporter 
supportive of or in opposition to Elon, that it is a significant matter one way or another. And the status of his transformation is an ongoing concern for people that I think are paying attention to what's going on. Um, there was a big status update with that our last week with uh, Elon uh, announcing that he had finally chosen his new Twitter CEO, and that will be Linda Yaccarino coming from NBC Universal. She was the chair, a chairman or chairwoman of global advertising and partnerships for NBC Universal. She's been described as a Madison Avenue power broker. And uh, the, the story is that she's going to be focusing on the revenue side of the ledger. And then although she's CEO, Elon's kind of going to be the chairman. He's still It's still going to be crafted in his vision. And it'll be a little bit more of a co-CEO role and just allowing her to, one, mend some of the relationships with advertisers and big corporations that might be a little skeptical of Twitter and also, also take some of the heat off Elon and also probably free up some time for him. Um, that, that's been the story, you know, of what, coming from Elon or anybody else commenting on this. Um, apparently that she is focused on repairing the company's relationship with Madison Avenue and wooing media companies back to the platform, potentially with partnership deals. Um, lots of people really reacted negatively to this, uh, mostly on the conservative side of the aisle, people that have benefited substantially from Elon Musk owning Twitter and implementing and rolling back a lot of the content moderation policies that the prior regime had implemented. And it's interesting to me because a lot of these people, I must be honest with you, I think they're throwing a hissy fit and it's completely unjustified. Let's just look at the facts here. Let's look at Elon's record since he took over Twitter. On its worst day under Elon Musk, Twitter has been an exponentially more free and free-flowing uh, and supportive of free speech platform than it was under the prior regime. You can go and nitpick all these things that he has done. Since Elon has purchased this, he has reinstated and restored so many accounts. He's loosened up the content moderation policies. He's made it a more fair, apt, and equitable platform and the content moderation uh, policies have been more reflective of the early days of Twitter. And th those are just facts one way or another. But a lot of people on the conservative side of the aisle who were disfavored by the, by the prior regime and are treated more neutrally and fairly now under the Elon regime threw an absolute hissy fit and exploded in outrage that he would put someone in charge of Twitter uh, like Linda Yaccarino. So let's go look into one, what the what is the basis for those concerns uh, and two, whether or not those concerns are justified. So let's get this straight. Linda Yaccarino is a successful corporate media executive. OK, in this day and age, in 2023, anyone who nearly anyone who ascends to those heights in a corporate media organization has to at least pay tribute or at least bend the knee to any variety of woke concerns. So you'll see a lot of things. A lot of Yaccarino's tweets, although she wasn't a prolific tweeter, tweeting in favor of certain DEI projects um, or certain certain other woke initiatives. But every one of these tweets was in the context of an NBC Universal uh, uh, initiative of some sort. Okay, so Linda Yaccarino does not ha is not tweeting her you know, these kind of personalized, non-contextual views, right? Everything that she communicates seems to be in her capacity as a corporate media executive and in furtherance or favor of something that NBC Universal is doing, okay? And that, unfortunately, I don't like it, but that is kind of how you have to operate as a, as a C-level or as a, as a top-tier executive at these companies. You have to pretend to be on board with these various initiatives. So looking at it, does she act, is she actually ideologically attached to these things and these concerns, and are they going to, going to inform the way that she operates Twitter, or at least operates tw trying to operate Twitter uh, uh, aside Elon, or was she just doing it as, uh, as an occupational requirement? I mean, 
all the available uh, evidence suggests that she was doing it as an occupational requirement that she kind of pays lip service to the things that she needs to and the initiatives that are going to be run by this company anyways, and that all these conservatives seem to want her to be this super rebellious type. Well, she didn't come from running the Daily Caller or Breitbart, right? If you want Twitter to be a right-wing platform, well, you're going to be out of luck. That's not what it is. The whole idea is that it's a neutral platform, so that as long as it is not heavily liberal or heavily woke, it will treat everybody neutrally and equally, and everything suggests that that is going to continue to occur. Uh, Linda Yaccarino, everyone who knows her, says that she's more of a political moderate who's actually kind of anti-woke in her personal views. I know a couple people who know her, and they all seem to believe that she, yeah, she she's uh, rolling her eyes at the woke stuff and just playing along for career advancement, which you can criticize, but I'm sorry, if you want to ascend to those heights in corporate media organizations, you have to do that. And Elon was only going to choose someone who did have those relate. He needs someone who has these advertising relationships. He needs someone who is a heavy hitter on Madison Avenue who can court all these big advertisers. So there are some concerns that Yaccarino, and this is Elon kind of showing that he's now going to craft the platform to kowtow, to submit to these more left-wing progressive uh, progressive advertisers and is going to start implementing the, the content moderation policies again. And at, at what point do these people actually look at the track record and actually give this guy the benefit of the doubt which he has earned? So let's look at it. When he started chit-chatting and, and kind of suggesting and tiptoeing around making an offer for Twitter, these people didn't believe he'd make he'd actually make an offer. Then he made an offer. He went and put his money where his mouth is. Okay, they agreed to it. Then, because, you know, he obviously was trying to, uh, uh, it wasn't necessarily trying to walk away from the deal, but he was trying to jam up the seller's uh, and uh, he was trying to jam up the sellers in the prior regime with lawsuits about the bot numbers to try to lower the price. All these people were concerned and were skeptical. Oh, he's not going to go through with the sale. Then he goes through with the sale, buys the thing for billions of dollars, puts a ton of his net worth and his credibility on the line to buy this company. Then he takes it over. He fires 70% of the staff and was like, oh my God, this platform is going to uh, disappear into oblivion. It's going to break. Uh, uh, you heard all the, the lamentations and the outrage and the fucking uh, the chicken littles screaming that the thing every time the platform had a bug that, oh my God, it meant that they fired too many of the engineers and not going to keep the platform alive. That turned out to be comically, absurdly untrue. The platform op op operates fine. Okay. It has continued to be there. Uh, maybe you could take issue with a couple of the algorithms changes and splitting up the for you and following uh, tabs on Twitter. But like the idea that Twitter is just going to break and no longer going to be there and no longer going to work. Those claims now literally seem as dumb as like the George W. Bush, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein is going to nuke us all. OK, it seems akin to the most ridiculous alarmism from any number uh, of incidents that you could find uh, uh, in recent American history. OK, the company fired 70% of its employees and it still works and it still works fine. 99.8% of the people who claimed that they were going to leave the platform and oh my god, I can't I can't live with myself tweeting on a platform owned by Elon Musk and uh, peddling all this right-wing misinformation. That didn't happen. 99.8% of them stayed right there and they're tweeting their asses off, okay? And it's comical to watch as they uh, as they seem to be operating behind enemy lines and put money in Elon Musk's pocket despite the fact that they believe that it is such a travesty that he owns it. Uh 
he released the Twitter files. He brought unspeakable transparency to what went on with the prior Twitter regime in term in regards to the Trump Russia controversy, uh, uh, COVID policy, Twitter operating at the behest as as kind of a quasi governmental force um, being directed by the, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, uh, Fauci, the FBI. He revealed all this at great risk to himself. He opened up all the books. Yet another point in favor of him being very sincere, wanting this to be a transparent platform that is in favor of free speech. The the content, I never see accounts get taken down anymore. And when they do get taken down, they're usually re- reinstated after a couple days. Like, so what else do conservatives want or right wingers want that would show that this guy is genuine about, you know, that he's going to, that he put his money where his mouth is and he's genuine about wanting this to be a free speech platform that does not discriminate against them like the prior regime did. I'd say that his track record gives him justifies the benefit of the doubt that he is hiring someone that he knows he needs, who has great relationships with the corporations that he needs to advertise on the platform and will be a good yin to his yang that he will stay in charge of the vision of Twitter uh, and that this person grading on a curve of levels of wokery Okay, for the types of C-level executives from big corporate media companies that he could have hired, grading on that curve, Linda Yaccarino falls on the non-woke side of the aisle. Every piece of evidence points in that direction. And this unfortunately also speaks to kind of the way that I think conservatives actually are mimicking some of the worst qualities of the woke crowd and just overreacting to these signals and not subjecting things to true scrutiny. Like the fact that Yaccarino, the same thing, how they reacted to seeing some of her tweets about DEI initiatives. Like, yeah, it sucks. I don't, you know, I'd prefer that people didn't have to, you know, go pretend to be into these causes. But hey, I know a lot of people who aren't really on board with these causes who are, you know, understand that their livelihood and their career is somewhat dependent on it and they know that the, the the professional incentives they have are to go tweet out every once in a while Ooh, i love this uh i love this dei initiative that nb that i company rolled out this month yay great woo woo okay Yaka, a person like Yaccarino, her professional incentives while working for NBCU are to pay lip service to those causes her professional incentives while working at twitter under elon musk and being paid by elon musk will, will be different okay when she's not incent- a person like that is not incentivized to pretend to support these causes, they don't have to, right? And why Elon has been very clear that he would not hire a person who was that woke in the first place. There's just no data point whatsoever that would suggest that he hired this person is going to be a complete rollback of everything he's done over the last seven or eight months. It just makes no sense whatsoever. But these conservatives, they see that she's on involved with the World Economic Forum. Like, guys, stop pretending the World Economic Forum. It's stupid, but it is not this like overarching. Uh, Bilderberg society Rothschild God knows what reverse vampires freaking underground council that runs the universe it's a bunch of rich people with stupid ideas who sometimes implement those stupid ideas once again it's mostly a worthless networking vehicle for C-level executives and business people uh, and entrepreneurs and people will use it to go meet other powerful people it doesn't mean they're all every person who's involved with the world economic forum is dying to roll back uh, the population and vaccinate everyone and make sure that you eat bugs she was head of the council on the future of work like if you're really concerned that a lot of people that you know there might be some new policies allowing more people to work from home instead of the office oh my god yaccarino's uh, an evil villain but like the conservative conception of the world economic forum is this like all-encompassing boogeyman is just ridiculous yeah there's some not great people involved in that organization it's really a, a bullshit organization for for conferences and like kind of hollow networking amongst already well really well networked people once again done for professional advancement okay you cannot go and 
find any particularly troubling activity that was implemented, not just some stupid, uh, not just some stupid panel discussion that the World Economic Forum may or may not have held, but something that actual tangible impact from the World Economic Forum through the through Linda Yaccarino's participation in it, that there is no tangible evidence of that whatsoever. Okay, one of the more level-headed conservative right-wing reactions to uh, to the Linda Yaccarino announcement was from Sarab Sharma. He's the president of the American Moment Organization, a conservative organization. Uh, he's a fellow at the Claremont Institute, a conservative think tank. And, and this is a level-headed person who's actually thinking here. He reacts, good choice. There's going to be a lot of extremely stupid, oh my God, she's a WEF plant stuff over the next few days. Here's the deal. Yaccarino is an anti-woke moderate who cares about free speech and has deep ties to the advertising industry. Tucker Carlson is about to bring all annual eight figures worth of advertiser harassers like media matters to Twitter. You want someone like her massaging the advertisers on the other side of the veil so that the entire platform doesn't become financially insolvent. A shit lib would not take this job. The only reason Yaccarino has come into Twitter is because she aligns with Elon. Every piece of evidence points to that being the correct take. Okay. You need someone who is a moderate, who isn't quite as isn't quite as in this direction of free speech as Elon is, and still can massage the advertiser to get them comfortable with the platform, which will allow to allow Elon to maintain ownership and control of the platform by maintaining its solvency. Okay. So everybody stop freaking out once again. On the worst day under Elon Musk that this platform has been exponentially more free and more in favor of free speech than it was under the prior regime. And people need to take a moment, acknowledge that and find some appreciation for it. So Linda Yaccarino, every piece of information I've gotten on her so far seems to be favorable. So hopefully she will get the company's advertising engine revving again, make it a financially successful platform because that is what we all want. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. As I said before, big week for revelations and reports about Trump era controversies this time. The economic and financial malfeasance of Joe Biden and his family members, uh, a House Republican report documenting some of the at least the claims of corruption and influencing uh, influence peddling by the Biden family was released this week. And uh, it's just beyond what the report revealed, just a, a, a master class in fake news by The New York Times. And I'm going to break this down. The New York Times article describing the House report. House Republican report finds no evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. That is the headline. Anyone who's reading that headline is suggesting that this report uncovered nothing noteworthy, uncovered no wrongdoing, no evidence in furtherance of wrongdoing or suggestion of impropriety on behalf of Joe Biden or Joe Biden's family members who were who might be uh, conducting the the misconduct on behalf of Joe Biden. Because once again, that was the accusation, right, is that Joe Biden wasn't taking direct payments for influence peddling but that he was allowing his son, his brother, and other people in his orbit to profit off, to unduly and unjustifiably profit off their association with him with a number of bad actors and take money for essentially doing nothing but being close to Joe Biden. That was the accusation. Yet, obviously, if you read that headline by the New York Times, you'd think that the Republican report found nothing. 
incredible because the article itself, literally everything in the article contradicts the headline. You literally start, but they know, the New York Times knows most people don't read past the headline, so they obviously have to frame the story in a misleading manner. Once you get into the article, at the top, businesses connected to Hunter Biden received more than $10 million from foreign companies, some with criminal ties. Literally right there. Like the entirety of the article there, thereafter goes on to document the House Republican report, which documented in excruciating detail how over $10 million from corrupt or uh, a corrupt criminal or other shady sources got from these sources to members of the Biden family for no discernible business purpose whatsoever, not in exchange for anything. Okay, let's look into what it revealed. The two main sources were Chinese sources and Romanian sources. Let's just look at the Romanian sources for a moment. In 2015, when Joe Biden was still vice president, he met with the president of Romania, went through a whole press conference and a dog and pony show about how great Romania was doing in stomping out corruption. Literally months after that conference, a well-known Romanian financial criminal, Gabriel Popovicu, deposited $180,000 into the account of Robinson Walker, LLC. Robinson Walker, LLC is owned by a close Biden family associate, John Robinson. John Robinson keeps on popping up as business partners or on LLC documents with Hunter Biden and other members of the Biden family. Days after the $180,000 deposit, $59,900 of those dollars ended up in the personal bank account of Hunter Biden. Over the next three years, over $3 million were transferred from Gabriel Popovicu to John Robinson or Robinson Walker LLC or other LLCs with over one million of that money redirected to Hunter Biden and or his sister-in-law that he then dated, Bo Biden, uh, Joe Biden's other son, Bo's ex-wife, Hallie. Uh, so this money, right, you're, you're thinking money has to be exchanged in exchange for something, right? Were, was Hunter Biden providing any valuable service? Uh, was he exchanging for for goods as a business partner? Was this an investment that was to be directed towards capital or operating expenses for business? No, this was all just passed through. This was all just setting up shell companies so a corrupt source could fund the shell companies and the shell companies could make large, unjustifiable payments to Hunter Biden or other people associated with the Biden family. Hunter Biden technically is a lawyer, but as we all know, and as he'll, he'll readily admit, he was not practicing law. He had no value and served no purpose as an attorney. However, some of the payments were at least uh, were at least labeled uh, for retainer payments to Hunter Biden as an attorney, but he never rendered any legal services. He never sent as a lawyer. You're supposed to send an invoice showing billing, showing the services that you billed for. Right. Lawyers bill on an hourly basis or a contingency basis. There is no, nothing to that effect here. It literally was just money that passed through one entity and went straight to Hunter Biden or companies that Hunter Biden was an owner of. Um, so that that evidence was right there in the House Republican report. Apparently, and the New York Times think that there, nothing was found, that there was no impropriety or nothing that reflected poorly on the president of the United States because no money went to him directly. That it's okay that his son and his brother and other family members and his business associates were essentially selling uh, selling access to Joe Biden or influence on Joe Biden in a, to corrupt actors, to financial criminals in exchange for money that the, it was not being paid for any other reason. The New York Times wants you to think that that's okay. The New York Times wants you to think that this House Republican report revealed nothing that is newsworthy or reflects poorly on the president because it did not find any payments that went directly to Joe Biden, who obviously was not going to get the payments directly because he was the vice fucking president at the time. That is not even close to the extent of it. The Romanian operation was a small operation. The larger operation was a Chinese operation. A lot of it uh, related to a company called CEFC China Energy. Um, 
lot of ties to the Chinese Communist Party there. The Chinese individuals who were behind CEFC all have checkered past. Some have been arrested, including one named Yi Jianming, who gave a $2.8 carat diamond to Hunter Biden, which he accepted once again for no ostensible business purpose. Hunter Biden is not an energy guru. He has no knowledge or skill about this. It was simply influence peddling. Once again, payments made for political influence that it's not unheard of, but lobbyists, for instance, are supposed to be registered. There's a lot of regulation around lobbyists. There's, this is a heavily regulated field. To accept money in exchange for trying to influence things politically, you're supposed to operate by a number of rules. Hunter Biden operated by none of those, and it, it would be a controversy if the vice president or the president's son was a lobbyist. That's not supposed to happen, but that's what was happening here. So, once again, CEFC entered into a JV with John Walker and uh, and Robinson Walker LLC, made a ton of payments into that LLC that then went to John Robinson and Hunter Biden. Once again, for no discernible business purpose whatsoever. They claim that this was for uh, a deal that where CEFC wanted to invest in nat a natural gas venture in Louisiana that the deal just flopped. Well, the deal may have flopped, but Hunter Biden kept all the money. So all these people making their investments, if they're supposedly just investing in services and skills for Hunter Biden that are supposed to yield some benefit or result, they're not getting their money's worth because that, that deal turned into nothing, right? This simply was the passage from Yi Jianming, money from Yi Jianming, a corrupt Chinese business person with ties to the CCP, to Hunter Biden that simply went through a couple LLCs. That's all it was. Another one, Hunter Biden and a Chinese business partner named Gong Wang Dong uh, formed Hudson West 3 LLC. Chinese partners then funded the company with $5 million in capital. Hudson West 3 then made payouts to Hunter Biden and James Biden, Hunter a one-time retainer of $500,000 to a non-practicing lawyer who didn't bill anything. $500,000 is a retainer. Not even the biggest, the, only, the biggest, most prominent criminal attorneys do get $500,000 retainers. They then have to bill against those $500,000 retainers. That wasn't the case here. $500,000 right to Hunter Biden. Ping Patrick Ho, an associate of Yi Jianming and the CEFC, later charged and convicted on international bribery and money laundering offenses for his work with CFC, CEFC affiliated company, uh, the Chinese Energy Fund Committee. Uh, Hunter was aware of Ho's links to the Chinese government, even on a recorded call. On a recorded call, he called him. He called this individual his business partner, the fucking spy chief of China who started the company that my partner founded and is now missing. In 2017, payment went from CEFC to Hunter Biden's company, Hudson West 3. A million of that then went directly to, to, to Hunter Biden. Okay. Ostensibly for Dr. Patrick Ho Ching Ping representation. Once again, a lawyer who doesn't practice, billing no hours, getting retainers. And so there's way more of this. I'm not going to go through it all. But clearly, the the claim that Joe Biden, that this House report revealed no evidence of misconduct or wrongdoing is complete and utter bullshit, right? I mean, you see what they were doing. You see how they're trying to frame this story, that the only accusation was about Joe Biden uh, committing direct uh, financial misconduct and receiving ill-begotten payments, and that if the investigation did not show any direct proof of that, then the in investigation turned up nothing. That's obviously not the case. The headline and the facts, in the headline to the article completely contradicts the facts in the article. It's ridiculous. And this is how fake news operates, right? It's not spirit cooking babies and lizard people and reverse uh, reverse vampires. It's headlines and small wordplay that are, are there to take advantage of the shareability of the internet that falsify and mischaracterize stories where the facts do not support the headline. That's fake news. And this was a case of fake news. Aside from the fact that this was not supposed to be the complete investigation, 
as this does, it might have not shown direct evidence of Joe Biden's direct financial misconduct. But when you show you're also parts of investigation are pieces of evidence that create probable cause to believe other crimes may have been committed and to continue the investigation, obviously. Right. And that is what is happening here. When you see Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, his brother, James Biden. Oh, go look into James Biden and the money he made off contracts in Iraq. Oh, my God. James Biden did pretty good off Iraq. When you see these people get uh, get payments and get funding that are done in a shady, uh, a shady, strange manner for no ostensible business purpose other than a political influence. That is then clearly evidence that uh, suggests probable cause to believe there's worthy of further investigation to see if there is any more evidence that Joe Biden either one was directly involved or two that there might be even further uh, uh, evidence of additional crimes. And that's also the case here because, as you know, you have to work with the evidence that you have uh, that you have access to, and there, the, the Republican committee is. More banks. There's a ton more bank records that can be researched, that can be investigated here to per perhaps reveal additional evidence of additional crimes. Because we're clearly seeing evidence of some crimes here that aren't made, that once again, Joe Biden's name isn't on. The guy's been a politician for 45 years. You think he doesn't know how to not put his name on the actual crime itself? The whole notion, the whole controversy in the first place was that he was doing this, that his, he was allowing his family to do this on his behalf, or at least letting his family do it, period, because like whether or not whether or not the money's ending up in Joe Biden's bank account, the fact that the vice president and the president is allowing his family to operate in this manner and working with America's enemies and profiting from dealing with America's enemies in exchange for nothing other than political influence is very bad. This is a bad thing. This is a controversy. So a fake news masterpiece, a perfect case study in fake news and how they manipulate headlines, manipulate language and mischaracterize the actual facts of the story on display in the New York Times and the investigation into the financial impropriety by Joe Biden's family members and perhaps by Joe Biden himself is ongoing. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.